0: Including financial coercion and forced breeding, and grooming of an adolescent by an authority figure. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 273. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislaster.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also tell you what's new with my life and my writing. More on that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 14 in my Metamorph City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Fiona called Daniel to let him know about Dell and Trace's deaths. Daniel realized, to his horror, that these two longtime friends were the size whom Victor had killed during their mission at the Skyport. Del's funeral is tomorrow, and Fiona asked Daniel to come support Rebecca, who is not dealing well with her grief. Daniel came to the summer cell's apartment, where he found Rebecca in her art studio. She had been trying to use her ESP to get a picture of Del and Trace's killer, and was at her canvas when Daniel arrived, deep in a psychic trance. She had painted an abstract and terrifying vision of a monstrous humanoid figure striding over a pile of bodies. A crowd of small red demons flitted around him, watching the warrior with bright and hungry eyes. Daniel managed to draw Rebecca out of the vision, and for a while he, Fiona, and Becca entered a weak gestalt, sharing strength with each other and commiserating about their fallen comrades. Afterward, Fiona told Daniel and Becca some more bad news. Dell's widow, Josephine, is in trouble. Dell's life insurance policy was voided because he died in the commission of a felony. Josephine is a member of the Ecclesia. Her religion requires Dell to be buried rather than cremated, which is hugely expensive in land-scarce Metamore. On top of that, without Dell's income, Josephine will be required to return to work. Leaving their newborn daughter in daycare. The combination of these three factors threatens to drive her into poverty. The Metamore Hive is willing to help Josephine, but not for free. If they step in and cover her mounting expenses, she will have to join a breeding cell. But the Ecclesia forbids group marriage, so if Josephine does join a cell, she'll be thrown out of the church. The Hive is trying to force her to choose between her faith and her daughter's future. And while Rebecca and Daniel don't share Joe's beliefs, they are furious that the Hive is being so cruel. Daniel is also indignant that the Hive made this decision without including them. After all, the Collective is supposed to make its decisions collectively. But the Summer Cell was excluded from the meeting because they botched their recent mission, and Daniel, as a low-powered male, is too low-status for the rest of the Hive to care what he thinks. Rebecca summed up what they were all thinking. I do love the collective, but at times like these, when this is how we treat people, it's sort of hard to remember why. Making the Cut A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 14 May 30, 1995 CR Westfall Academy Miriam Bakhtavar entered the girls' dorm room with her senses on full alert. She sized up the situation in an instant, She saw the bare spots on the walls around Abby Preston's bed, where she had once kept pictures of herself and her friends. She saw the empty bookshelf, where Abby had kept her small collection of adventure novels, and the bedside table where she had kept her journal. She could still smell the girl, but her scent had faded slightly in comparison to that of the other three girls who shared her room. Only one of them was here now, lisa one of Abby's few close companions. The others, she knew, were at their combat arts class, where Lysa and Abby should have been. Mistress Miriam? Lysa said, her voice timid. The teenager's heart rate was elevated, and the chemicals she was giving off in her sweat spoke of restless anxiety. Miriam smiled at her kindly. She was here in her role as deputy headmistress, not as an elder, so she didn't hide her identity and emotions from the girl. Peace, Lisa, she said, sending her a wave of encouragement. Tell me what happened. Lysa sat down on the edge of the dresser, wrapping her arms around herself. Abby didn't come down for breakfast this morning, she said. I thought that was kind of weird, especially for her. But hey, maybe she snuck out last night or something, right? She froze, then looked up at Miriam out of the corner of her eye. Not that we've ever done anything like that, she added quickly. Miriam smiled wryly. Of course not. And after breakfast? She didn't show up at our first class either, Lysa said. But it was just elven literature, which is boring anyway, so I thought maybe she skipped it. But then she didn't show up at combat arts either, and I knew something was wrong. Abby practically lives in the Somnok. Miriam frowned. She knew Abby's record, and Lysa was not exaggerating by much. Go on. I thought maybe she was sick, so I came back to the dorm to check on her. That's when I found these. She pulled two stationary envelopes out of her back pocket and handed them to Miriam. One of them bore Lysa's name and was opened. The other was still sealed and addressed to Miriam herself. Lysa's letter was written with purple ink, in a loopy, feminine script. The letter had been written with obvious care, neatly staying within the guide rules of the stationery, but the frequent use of underlines and capital letters betrayed the author's excitement. Dear Lysa, I'm writing this letter to say goodbye, at least for now. I really wish I could have told you sooner, but Victor said that they would try to stop me from going— so we had to keep it a secret. Everything I always wished for is coming true, Lisa. It's just like the old stories. Victor is my brave knight, coming to take me away to a new life. They wouldn't let him marry me here in the hive. They're jealous of him, and some of the older women have spread horrible stories about him to try to keep him from ever being happy. But I know my knight, and he would never hurt me. They're all wrong about him. And we're going to prove it. It hurts so bad to know that I'm not going to see you again for a long time. You're my best friend in the whole world, and I will never, ever forget you. I promise I'll come find you again when I can, but Victor says it might be a couple years. We need to have a few kids first. And once they see how strong and beautiful they are, they'll have to welcome us back. Don't try to come looking for me, because we're probably going to have to hide for a while. Stay and finish school, and when I see you again, we'll link up, and you can show me all the stuff I missed. Try not to sleep through Elvin lit. Okay, I have to go now. Keep it on the bright side till I see you again. Love you forever. Abs. A lipstick kiss had been pressed into the paper next to the girl's closing words. Miriam raised her eyebrows and handed it back to Lisa without comment. Lysa folded it and put it in her back pocket, blushing. Miriam opened the second envelope and unfolded the letter. Both it and the name on the envelope had been written in black, using a strong, heavy hand that was very different from Abby's. The penmanship was clean, but sharp and angular, and the backside of the letter was covered with embossed lines, where the pen's nib had bit hard into the surface. Elder Bakhtavar Abby is safe with me. I trust that you will not make this a point of contention between us. She came to me of her own free will, and, as you said, participation in the collective is voluntary. All of Abby's debts to the collective have been paid. She is a free woman. I promise you I will keep her safe as long as she stays with me, which I trust will be a good many years. Good luck to all of you in your future battles. For us, the fight is over, and I go to enjoy the fruits of victory. V. Mistress Miriam? The voice came from beside her. She turned to see that Lysa had been reading over her shoulder. If possible, she looked even more worried now than she had before, and Miriam's nose told her that the teenager had broken out in a cold sweat. What's going on here? Lysa asked. "'Teachers aren't supposed to marry their students, are they? "'That's not normal.' "'Miriam's grip tightened around the letter. "'No, Lysa, it isn't normal. "'I should have seen this coming,' she thought. "'I should have anticipated it. "'Abby was always too close to Victor. "'Great Maker, how could I not have heard this in his mind?' "'Lysa put a hand on her arm. "'What are you going to do?' Miriam looked down at the letter again. I will keep her safe as long as she stays with me, which I trust will be a good many years. Hells, Victor, you always had a way with words. For now, nothing, she said heavily. But Kano Victor... Cono Victor is right in one sense, Miriam said firmly. We cannot hunt Abby down and hold her against her will. Young and naive as she may be, she is a free woman, and we are not her parents. She took Lysa's hand in hers. Abby knows where to find us. We will watch for her, and when she is ready, we will bring her home. Lysa nodded, and Miriam turned to leave. And I will pray, she thought, that I am not making another grave mistake. Dell's funeral was held in the town of Glen Avery, a small but ancient community that sat nestled between the towers of Metamore City and the peaks of the Dragon Mountains. The glen was home to the last remaining old growth forest in the Kingdom of Metamore, and its people built their homes and businesses around the ancient trees, rather than cutting them down. Skimmers were prohibited inside the glen and the single maglev tube that passed through it made only two stops within its borders. It was a quiet and peaceful community, where theriomorphs like Del and Josephine made up more than two-thirds of the population. It was also one of the few places in the valley where one could walk safely at ground level, which made it one of the few viable locations for an Ecclesiast cemetery. Daniel watched in silence as Dell's priest led them through the burial rites. Josephine stood at the front of the small crowd, her glossy white fur a striking contrast to her black mourning dress. Her mother stood beside her and held little Elizabeth in her arms, shushing the infant when she started to whine for her mother. Josephine barely moved at all through the ceremony. Her wolfish face looked like a mask, rigid and empty. She's burying a part of herself today, too, Daniel thought. Rebecca's grip on his hand tightened, and he heard her choke back a sob. She must have picked up on what he was thinking, or come to the same conclusion herself. Joe had never been close to the rest of them, the way that Dal and Trace had been, but she was still family. Not that the rest of the hive apparently felt that way. Damn it. She deserves better than to be left out in the cold like this. The priest concluded his reading from the prayer book, then raised his eyes and beckoned. Four men in black suits came forward and lowered Dell's coffin into the ground. One of them handed a shovel to Josephine. She moved stiffly forward to the edge of the grave, the shovel in one hand and a single rose in the other. She bowed her head and murmured something that Daniel couldn't hear, then let the rose fall into the grave. A single spadeful of dirt followed a moment later. She stared down into the earth for a long moment, before handing the shovel back to the man and returning to stand beside her mother. The priest spoke. In sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Joshua." We commend to Almighty Eli our brother Del Matthews, and we commit his body to the ground. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. May Eli bless him and keep him. May he make his face to shine upon him and be gracious to him. The Lord lift up his countenance upon him and give him peace. Amen. Amen, Daniel whispered. He wiped the tears out of his eyes and put his arm around Rebecca as she leaned against him. Her thoughts wrapped around his, raw with grief for Dell and sympathy for Josephine and her daughter. The priest led them in a responsive reading and a final benediction, but Daniel barely heard any of it. His attention was focused on Josephine, who stared straight ahead and clutched at her mother's arm like it was the only thing keeping her from falling. Daniel thought he could see the weight of her situation pressing down on her. Without Dell's income, and with an infant child to care for, the chances of her making it on her own were small. Her mother was not wealthy, and her father was long dead. Little Elizabeth would have to go into daycare if Joe went back to work, and the cost would be financially devastating. Even with government assistance, she had little to look forward to but an endless succession of long work days and a small mountain of debt from funeral and child care costs. There was an out for her, of course. If she came back to the collective, she wouldn't have to worry about child care, health care, or even the cost of the funeral. Trace's four wives were grieving now, but at least they didn't have the added burden of worrying about how they would provide for their children. Josephine could have that kind of protection, too, but to get it, she would have to violate her religion's teachings by joining a breeding cell. Damn it, he thought again. This isn't fair. She shouldn't have to choose between her conscience and her daughter's well-being. That thought was followed soon after by another. Fine, so what are you going to do about it? He blinked and looked around. For a moment, he thought he'd picked up the question from someone else, but it didn't sound like Rebecca's thoughts. He saw Brian, Sasha, and Fiona approaching. It hadn't sounded like any of them, either, and Daniel really didn't want to give Sasha a chance to overhear anything he might be thinking. He turned to Rebecca. Excuse me, he said to her. I've got to get going. Talk to you later. She looked over at Brian and the others, then looked back. Okay, she said, nodding. He knew she would probably blame his sudden departure on jealousy toward Brian, and he was more than willing to let her keep thinking that. After giving her hand one final squeeze, he stepped away from the crowd and into the trees. He stopped when he could no longer hear the conversations from the other guests. He leaned up against an ancient oak and stared up at the branches, thinking... "'What are you going to do about it?' The more he thought about it, the more it seemed like the question had come from inside his own mind, not from one of the telepaths present at the funeral. "'What do I mean, what am I going to do about it?' A scornful part of his mind laughed at him. "'Stop dicking around,' it said. "'You said you wanted to do something to atone for what you did. "'Well, here's your chance.' You've got an anonymous bank account full of untraceable cash. Use it. Daniel closed his eyes and leaned his head against the tree. That was supposed to be my shot at a future for me and Rebecca, our chance to get away from the hive. And if you do that, the voice said, and in the process Josephine gets stuck there in your place, are you really going to be able to live with yourself? Daniel winced. He already knew the answer. Damn it, he thought. Damn it, damn it, damn it. His cynical side seemed to grin at him. Look on the bright side. Bex probably wouldn't have left her cell for you anyway. At least this way you're doing something good with that blood money of yours. Daniel growled and stalked back toward the gravesite. My brain talks too much, he muttered. He found Josephine kneeling by the grave watching silently as the men filled it with dirt. He put a hand gently on her shoulder. Joe, he said softly, can I talk to you for a second? She looked up at him, staring blankly for a moment before her eyes came into focus. Oh, she said, her voice coming out thready. Daniel, yes, I I suppose. He knelt down beside her, ignoring the fact that he was getting dirt all over his best pair of slacks. Listen, some of us heard about what the Hive is trying to do to you. It's sick and wrong, and we want to help. She opened her mouth, then apparently thought better of it. She nodded for him to continue. Daniel pulled out a business card that he'd been carrying around for the last few days. Some of Dell's friends got together and chipped in what we could to help out you and Elizabeth. He said, handing her the card. There's a numbered account at this bank with 50,000 marks in it. The access information is on the back of the card. We want you to have it all. She stared at him, her lupine jaws falling open. In any other circumstances, it might have been funny. Daniel, she breathed. Dear Lord, 50,000? Where did you get that much? Daniel shrugged and gestured vaguely with one hand. Dell was a good guy. He had a lot of friends. The others want to stay anonymous, though, in case the hive might try to punish them for helping you. His lip twisted into a wry, half-smile. They can't like me any less than they already do, so I volunteered to be the one to tell you. She laughed at that, despite her tears, and held the little card over her heart like an answered prayer. ''Daniel, I... thank you. The last few days, any time I'm not thinking about Dell, I'm thinking about Liza and how I'm going to take care of her.'' She reached out and hugged him tightly. ''This is an answer to so many prayers.'' Then her voice broke, and she simply held him and wept. Her thoughts meshed with his, and he felt her mixture of grief, gratitude, and profound relief. He offered her what strength he could, but he didn't open up to her with anything more than his emotions. He didn't want her to know where the money had really come from. Daniel held her until she got herself back under control again. When he helped her to her feet, she looked a little stronger than she had during the service. She was still in horrible pain, of course, but she seemed to be better able to face it now, instead of shutting herself down. Daniel was relieved to see that. Elizabeth would need her mother. If Joe closed off her emotions at this early stage in her life, the child might be permanently scarred by it. He ushered her back to where her mother and Elizabeth were waiting. Josephine took her daughter in her arms, smiling through her tears as she showed her to Daniel. Daniel stroked the white-furred baby behind the ears, and she opened her mouth in a yawn and squeaked. Daniel and Josephine shared a laugh at that, and it eased some of the heaviness around their hearts. Daniel planted a gentle kiss on Elizabeth's forehead before embracing Joe one last time. Take good care of her, he said softly. Hopefully you can find something that lets you spend plenty of time with her. Josephine nodded. With the seed money you gave us? Yeah, I think we can work it out. She shrugged, putting on a brave face. Always wanted to try starting my own business. Daniel put a hand on her shoulder. You'll be great at it. Call Fiona if you need any help sorting out the finances. She's a genius at that stuff. He leaned in close. Just don't tell her where you got the money. She'd spend the next six months hunting us all down, just so she could get our taxes straight. The wolf woman bared her teeth at that and it took one long, frightening moment before Daniel recognized it as a grin. Mercifully, it only lasted a few seconds. I won't breathe a word of it, she promised. She stepped back and took his hand in hers. Thank you again, Daniel, for everything. Eli bless you. Daniel nodded and squeezed her hand in parting. Take care, Joe. As he began walking out of the cemetery... Daniel felt some of the burden of guilt slip from his shoulders. While he couldn't deny that his actions had helped lead to Dell and Trace's deaths, he at least could take solace in the fact that he hadn't profited by them. Hell, the vampire syndicate had unwittingly paid for Dell's widow to start a new life, which had to set some kind of record for irony. "'Everything I did, I did for the sake of life,' Daniel told himself." I was stupid and gullible and should have seen what Victor was a lot sooner, but I saved his life because, well, because that's what I do. I'm a healer, and I can't bring Dell back, but maybe I helped Joe to start down the path to healing. He nodded at that. He'd done everything that could be done to balance the scales over Dell and Trace's deaths. He was right back where he started, as trapped as ever but he could live with himself. He'd given up the promise of his own future in order to make one for Josephine. In his heart of hearts, he could accept that. It felt like justice. He hoped that the satisfaction of that truth would be enough to sustain him through the mediocre, dead-end life that was probably waiting for him in the collective. And that's the end of chapter 14. Come back next time, when Daniel gets an unexpected visit from Ava Salindi, who has a radical idea about how to change his situation. Julia Cameron said, No matter what your age or your life path, whether making art is your career or your hobby or your dream, it is not too late or too egotistical or too selfish or too silly to work on your creativity. So, let's see how I've done this week. Here's your weekly writing report. This update covers the week of January 23rd through January 29th. I wrote 4,713 words this week over the course of seven hours, for an average writing speed of 673 words per hour. As of Friday night. I have gone 286 days without breaking my chain. I continued pushing forward this week on Honor Bound. I think we are now at the climax of the external through-line, the side of the plot that involves the characters doing things in the world. Honor is having to step out and be courageous in new ways, which is great fun to write. Soon I'll be wrapping things up, and I'll have to decide where I want to end this story— and which plot threads I want to leave open for future books. I'm also starting to think about two short stories that I'll need to write with these characters after the book is finished. The first will be an epilogue story, something I can offer to readers who finish the novel and want to spend more time with the characters. This will serve as an enticement for readers to join my mailing list, where I can continue to reach them to promote future works. I think I have a good idea for what this story will be, At the end of the book, Honor owes one of the other characters a pretty big favor, and this can be the story of that other character coming to collect. I won't say any more than that, for fear of spoilers. The other thing I need to write is a prequel story, something I can disseminate far and wide to whet people's appetites for the book. This should be a story with many of the same themes and emotional tones as the main book, something to get people invested in the characters. That's a bit tricky with this book, because Honor and Natasha meet for the first time in the course of the novel, and I don't want the readers to latch on to some other couple instead. I also can't have Honor getting up to anything sexy in the prequel, because the novel establishes that Natasha is her first sexual partner. I have an idea that I think will work here, focusing on Natasha and how she first learned that she was a Dom, but I'll have to play with this one a while and see where it goes. I'm now in Chapter 44, and the manuscript is over 124,000 words. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082 followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author chris lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.